This is Peyton. This is the backdrop. Couldn't have said it any better myself. Welcome to the backdrop. Sorry, we're getting this out a little later than we'd like to this week. I um, wanted to talk through a few of the things that came up in my preparation for the sermon on John chapter 2, where Jesus clears out the temple. The first thing that I wanted to talk about right off the bat is the question of the timing of this action. Eagle-eyed readers of the New Testament will have noticed that in the other Gospels, when this story is told, it happens during Passover week. That is the final week of Jesus's life. But here in John, it happens right at the beginning in chapter 2. People have puzzled over this for, well, millennia, trying to figure out what exactly is going on here and why John and the other Gospels talk about this event differently. And there are a variety of different explanations for it. Some people say that it really happened at the beginning of Jesus's ministry and the Synoptic Gospels put it at the end for theological rather than chronological reasons. Other scholars say, no, it's John who has moved it around chronologically for theological reasons. And because it highlights what he wants to say about Jesus, he's putting it right up front. Then there are others who say, well, maybe there were two times that Jesus went into the temple and cleared everybody out because there are some differences between how John tells the story and how the what are called the synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark and Luke, how they tell the story. So maybe it's two different events that are being talked about here. The bottom line is we have no way of knowing what the right answer to that question is. It may be that Jesus did it twice or once at the beginning or once at the end. We really don't know. I think what we can do is kind of in the spirit of something I said on, I think, the first backdrop, actually, and that is to trust that however it is that events actually happened, if we had been there as eyewitnesses ourselves, that the gospel writers have good reasons, reasons that have been inspired by the Spirit to write the way that they have. And so if John is telling the story and moves this event up in Jesus's life, that doesn't undermine the story itself. He has good reasons for doing it in the same way that we would have good reasons for playing around with the timeline and a story we're telling to a friend so as to make it easier to understand or to highlight the things that we want to highlight about the story. Chronology is not what makes this story theologically significant. Ultimately, while these questions are fun to think about, I think the most faithful response to reading scripture is to read the words that have been put there, to try and make sense of them as the original author who has been inspired by the Holy Spirit, is writing, and to listen to the Spirit ourselves as we read and interpret, to try and hear what the Spirit would want to say through these stories to us today. A second quick thing I thought was interesting is the way that this story anticipates the story that Meredith is going to be talking about next week, Jesus's conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. In that story, just to give a little preview of it, Jesus and the woman have a bit of a theological argument debate about where worship ought to happen. The woman says, well, you Jews, you have a temple in Jerusalem, but we have our own temple that we believe is where we ought to worship God. So who's right? And Jesus's answer is kind of to say, well, neither in a way. You're both sort of missing the point. The goal God has is for all people to be able to worship anywhere in spirit and truth is the phrase that he uses. And the reason that this passage, this story that we read uh, this week, 
anticipates that is this is where Jesus introduces the idea of his body being the temple of his body being the mechanism by which all people everywhere can have access to and can worship God. And then he follows that up in his conversation with the Samaritan woman by saying something similar, that the day is coming when that will be the way that people worship God through Jesus rather than in a geographical location that is either the right one or the wrong one, depending on whose side you're on. So in our passage here, Jesus is saying you can tear down this temple and it will be rebuilt in three days, meaning his body will be crucified and then raised from the dead. And that at that point, it will be the temple of God that allows all people to worship God in spirit and truth. It's one of those little details that is fun in the Bible and how the authors, uh, well, they really know what they're doing in putting together their story and making their theological points, which is always endlessly fascinating and encouraging to me and I hope to you as well. The third little thing I wanted to uh, talk about a little bit here on the backdrop is I made a little bit of a point this weekend in, in the sermon that we are doing justice as followers of Jesus because Jesus compels us to do that without separating out that idea from um, following Jesus in other ways, as if we could have one and not the other. And I said, I made a kind of a, a, a little joke about like, we're not doing it just so that we can be good liberals in 21st century Western society. But I think that is an issue that sometimes trips people up when they see a church that is committed to doing justice or even using the word social justice. I have had um, people in other churches get kind of upset about us having used that phrase, social justice, to describe what it is that we're supposed to be doing um, because they connect it with Marxism and communism and therefore it's not a phrase that we ought to be using. And I think sometimes the the thought, and this tends to be on the more conservative side of, of the aisle, so to speak, is that we are just um, following culture. And rather than following Jesus, we're just doing what will make culture happy with us because we're talking about justice now because that's like a trendy thing in the culture around us. And to be clear, we have not gotten any of that pushback here <laughs> this week, but just wanted, like, I know that that sort of thinking is out there. So I thought it might be helpful to talk through it just a little bit here. And, and there's two things that I want to say. First, is that, yes, in some sense, we should follow culture. And what I mean by that is this. There are way more things that we could say about God than there is time to say them to the world around us. So we inevitably have to pick and choose how we are going to communicate the good news to our culture. And so it does stand to reason that we ought to take the things that are going to most speak to our culture. This is what cross-cultural missionaries do all the time. They get to know the culture to which they are going, and then they try and figure out how to communicate the good news in terms that culture is going to at least understand. And so there is some sense that if our culture is in an era of caring about justice, well, great, Jesus cares about justice more. And so we can highlight that fact as a way to communicate the good news to the people around us. And there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. Where it does get tricky is when we start losing the Jesus part of it in order to communicate to the culture or in order to ingratiate ourselves to the culture around us. And I will readily admit that that can be a problem, but I don't think that's what we're doing here. So that's the first thing that I wanted to say. Yes, we do sometimes follow culture in how we talk about the good news, and that isn't a bad thing. And then the other thing that I wanted to say is this. Our culture has been in some very significant ways 
influenced by the Bible, by Judaism and Christianity and the values and the um, stories that are there. And so it stands to reason that echoes of that would show up even in more secular spaces. And I think that there are examples of that all around. In this case, if the culture is concerned with justice and with standing with the oppressed right now, that is in many ways a result of the influence of the Bible, of stories like the one that we looked at. Even if people are not identifying as followers of Jesus, I think it's kind of in the water so to speak, in our culture to care about justice. And so there are times when the church loses sight of that or gets a little confused about what justice looks like. And sometimes it is the culture around us that calls us back to who we ought to be. I guess another way of saying it is this, when our culture is doing a better job than the church is at reflecting who God is, (laughs) that doesn't mean that we should ignore culture. It means that we should listen and remember who we were supposed to be all along. So I hope that made some sense. And then the last thing I wanted to hit on this episode of The Backdrop is to say a little bit more about Genesis 1 and ancient temples. If you remember, in my sermon, I was talking about how in the ancient world, a temple was seen as a microcosm for the cosmos or the universe as a whole, and that that had certain implications for how we understood what Jesus was doing in the temple. So to give some of that context, I'm using a couple of books by a scholar named John Walton, who was an Old Testament professor at Wheaton, I think still is, but I'm not 100% sure of that. The one book is a little bit more of a scholarly type book that has lots of quotations from ancient sources and Akkadian and Babylonian sources and all those sorts of things. Um, And it is called Ancient Near Eastern Thought and the Old Testament. I I really enjoyed it, but it is a little bit more uh, scholarly, a little denser. And then there's another book that is a little bit um, at a more popular level that's a little more accessible, and it is called The Lost World of Genesis 1, Ancient Cosmology and the Origins Debate. Walton highlights a few features of the story we find in Genesis 1 as evidence the world is created as a temple for God. One is the fact that there are seven days, and at the end of the seven days, God rests. He says that would have been a dead giveaway for an ancient reader that this is a text, a story about building a temple. Because temple building texts often use this idea of seven days days, and they would have noticed that the true climax of the story, the most important part, is day seven, when God rests. Deity, he writes, for the ancient reader, is supposed to rest in a temple and only in a temple. This is what, in effect, what temples are for. In fact, he says this might be better said, this is what a temple is in the ancient world, a place for God to rest. And it's important that we note that rest here does not mean like relaxation, like just taking it easy. The idea instead is more that now that creation has been accomplished, that the battle with chaos and disorder has been finished, now the real work of ruling can be done. And so rest is more like sitting on your throne, preparing to do the work of God in ruling over the world. That is what rest was for. And the temple is where that rest happened. In this sense, a temple in the ancient world was less for worship, which is kind of what we associate with it today, and more a control center for God to do the work of being God. And temples in the ancient world were also usually linked with creation in other ways, like their location. In Egypt, for example, temples were seen as having been built on the first land that came up out of the waters during creation. That in the Egyptian account, 
temple stand on the first soil that emerged out of the water, which is where the creator God stood to begin his work of creation itself. And so with each of the large temples in ancient Egypt, they included an origin myth that connected the structure with creation. And that wasn't just a story. It also was enacted in the the temple building itself. The floor would represent the earth and the ceiling would represent the sky with birds and such things. And there'd be columns on the uh, that, that lined the walls holding up the sky and there'd be plant life uh, depicted on the walls as well. In some sense, for the ancient Egyptians, the temple was the world and the God that was dwelling in that temple was filling the world. And I mentioned some on Sunday how the temple in Israel had similar, though not exactly the same, depictions of the universe as a whole within the temple and the different structures and walls and decorations therein. Walton also points out that it was a common feature of ancient texts to describe temple building in two stages. First, there was the building of the different parts of the temple, and then there was the filling of those parts, kind of in a parallel structure. And this is the same sort of thing you see in Genesis 1, where days 1 to 3 are about the creating of the different parts of creation. So separating the sky from the waters or separating the earth, the land from the sea. And then days four, five, and six are about filling those things. The birds filling the sky, the fish filling the sea, plants and animals and humans filling the earth. There is also the reality that in a lot of ancient texts about temples, um, the dedication of the priests is an important part of that construction. And in Genesis 1, it concludes, well, before God rests, of course, with the creation of humans. And the language that is used about humanity in Genesis 1 parallels some similar language that would be used about the function of priests in a temple in other ancient sources. So Walton puts all this together to say that these parallels are too many to ignore and that what we have in Genesis 1 is, in fact, a description of the creation of the world as a temple for God. And then, as I said in my sermon, the temple in Jerusalem, when it is built by Solomon, has all these decorations and other things that link it in the same way that these other ancient temples were linked to creation as a whole. It it becomes a microcosm representing um, all of creation. So I found all those parallels interesting, obviously, and especially when we keep in mind Jesus's words and other parts of his ministry. And even like I referenced his words to the Samaritan woman in just the next chapter, chapter four, I think we are on firm ground in seeing that Jesus is not concerned about any particular sacred space, like the space of the temple, but rather is concerned about the world as a whole and justice in the world as a whole, because the world as a whole is God's temple, the place in which he dwells and where he is present with humanity. So I hope that part about the ancient temple building stuff was not too convoluted. I had to try and figure out how to not just quote long stretches of text from Walton's book, uh, which would not be terribly enthralling listening, I'm sure. But if that's something you want to dig in more, I think his books are really interesting for that purpose. In any event, I hope that you enjoyed this episode of The Backdrop. And as always, we'd love to hear any feedback on it or how it might be more helpful to you in the future. In the meantime, we hope to see you Sunday at 4.30 for our worship time and then at 5.30 for dinner. Come to both, come to either. We would love to have you as always. Until then, bye. Bye.